When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, I probably would eat. I would definitely eat my mate. If I mean, if they were dead, if they were dead already, just to be clear. It's David Baddiel. Well, I'm not David Baddiel. I'm Andrew Gold. But David Baddiel's on the podcast today on On the Edge with Andrew Gold. He's a household name and rose to fame as one half of the Newman and Baddiel Act in the 90s. He then worked with comedian Frank Skinner. And I was a huge fan of their Baddiel and Skinner Unplanned. Um, I still have the theme tune in my head. Um, It goes, it'll never work and neither will we again which i used to find very funny uh i used to watch it as a teenager sort of in bed on school nights uh you know staying up later than i should have done it was great uh but not only did the duo produce some of the best comedy and talk shows over the years they also wrote alongside the lightning seeds one of the best songs of all time i'm talking about football's coming home or Three Lions. If you're not a football fan or not from the UK, you might not know it. Although I know that the Germans love that song and they sort of do their own versions of it. It is a song that was written around football, right? The sport, which is soccer to some people in other countries, and is laced not with triumph and tribalism, but despair and longing and and whimsy. Uh, And it's not what you might expect from a sports song. So do have a listen if you don't know that. It's rather beautiful. In recent years, David has written apparently brilliant children's books. He's put on a play called God's Dice and taken to the stage for shows that are halfway between comic stand-up and theatrical monologues. Just as with the old football song, David has a knack for finding light in darkness and darkness in light. In his show My Family, he tactfully explored the humour and sadness in his father's battle with dementia and his mother's death. He's also investigated the effects of social media, and I suggest, if you're in the UK anyway, you watch his recent documentary about it for the BBC. And I saw him perform Trolls Not the Dolls just a couple of months ago in Bath, all about the ridiculousness of angry social media users. But David Baddiel is also known for being a British Jew, like me. His Twitter bio is simply Jew. And he explains today how he is reclaiming the word, in a sense. Despite appearances or stereotypes, there aren't really many Jews in the world, particularly in the UK. Um, I looked up to David for years, and he's helped me and many others like me to feel less ashamed of our roots. And we talk about that shame around being Jewish today. It's, It's a really strange one, and I think that might come as a surprise to some of you, as it probably doesn't appear that way from the outside so i hope this is of interest to you his new book jews don't count is simply the best look at anti-semitism today and how jews have become lost in the progressive hierarchy i don't usually say this but it's essential reading i really really hope you guys get a chance to to get it it's quite a a fast read it's not like a whole and i say that because i prefer to get books that are not going to like take months and months to get through it's 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 a good page-turning, interesting read um, with some humour in it and some fascinating facts. While the far right looked down on Jews as subhuman, the far left 
see them or us as privileged or super white. This was evident just the other week when Whoopi Goldberg claimed the Holocaust was just white people fighting each other and that it had nothing to do with race. Bedil disagrees and explains how Jews are a race because atheists like him and me would have been gassed by the Nazis regardless of our views. It has nothing to do with religion. He also dispels countless myths in Jews Don't Count about Jewish wealth and power and omnipresence. I keep repressing an urge to apologize in advance for the abundance of Jew-related conversation here, but as David teaches me, I shouldn't be ashamed. So I hope this is as entertaining and enlightening for some of you listeners as it has been for me. At the same time as all of this, it's a thrill for me to have a comedian of his calibre on the show, and I didn't want us to just be bogged down in serious stuff the whole time. Uh, Bogged down, bogs being the operative word, because we do talk a fair bit about self-defecation, shitting oneself essentially. So if you want to if you're into that, you'll love this. If not, skip that bit. And other silly things for the first 20 minutes or so. We joke about some things that are a bit insensitive, like having to eat one's friends. I hope people aren't too offended by that because they'll be remembering that very emotional episode with Cochin Siarte, episode 53 of this podcast, who did have to eat his friends. But at the same time, I do believe there's no topic that you shouldn't be able to joke about. Uh, one that David often tells is a joke about the Holocaust. In fact, it goes... A Holocaust survivor dies and goes to heaven. On arrival, he tells God a Holocaust joke. And God says, that isn't funny. The survivor replies, oh, well, you had to be there. So there's a joke about the Holocaust that shouldn't really be offensive to anyone but God, who I don't believe in. Do get Jews Don't Count. There's a link in the show notes. Do follow David on Twitter at Badil is his uh, handle, I suppose you'd say. I'm on at Andrew Gold underscore OK. I've only got 3,800 followers and David's got 820,000. So if you can only sign up to one of us, probably, you know, if you're feeling charitable, go with me. If you want to follow the crowd, go with him. But, you know, why not follow both of us? Make sure to review and subscribe. Recent guests include John Ronson, Richard Dawkins, and Amanda Knox. And next week is part two with one of the world's biggest podcasters, Jordan Harbinger. Then we have Dr. Peter Hughes on to talk about demolishing statues that we don't like, and Katie Herzog to discuss cancel culture. But now, it's David Baddiel. want to say i'm so sorry to hear about the passing of your father how are you holding up uh, i'm okay thank you that's fine i mean you know it was a long expected thing doesn't mean it's not still somehow deeply shocking that he's gone uh and there are moments when i feel just a very kind of acute sadness about it all but um you know it is that's life and indeed death so you know onwards and upwards i guess is it one of those places where social media has helped? Because I've seen a lot of sort of, uh, you know, outreach to you and people saying nice things and memories and things. Yeah, I mean, it actually was really nice. I mean, it just so happened that I had this weird thing that I just did uh, of talking about him a lot on social media and posting pictures of him. And as a kind of like, you know, follow on from the fact that I've done a show about my parents and uh, talked a lot about his disease and all the rest of it, what he was like as a person. Uh, and... So I got an awful lot of people saying, I felt like you're your dad, even though I never met him. And that's quite nice in a way, because it sort of feels like the portrait that I painted of him was a fairly accurate one. 
Um, and then when people responded, it doesn't feel like an empty gesture. It doesn't feel like they're just saying, oh, your dad's died, I'm sorry. It feels like they actually have some sense of the guy who's gone. So many of us feel like we knew him as well. I used to, I listened to you a lot on Ricky Gervais's podcast and there was so much humour you got uh, from your family, of course. That's why you did that, uh, the, the tour, which which I didn't get to see. I saw you at Trolls, um, Trolls Not not Dolls, which was fantastic. That was in Bath. Um, and I'm sorry, do you remember, I, I said something at, half time um that there's someone next to me could they stop laughing yeah yeah i do remember you were one of the half time uh people sending me a message on twitter for anyone who doesn't know my show trolls not the dolls which was the last stand-up show that i did uh which was very um you know extended because of the pandemic i started it in march 2020 did 40 shows and then had to put it in the freezer for about two years and then did it again at the end of last year one of the last gigs, I think, was at Bath the Forum, which already had to have to. Which, this is very Bath information, but I'd had to move it from the theatre theatre royal because of pandemic issues as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, you did, and we'd already had some kind of chat by then, hadn't we? And we already had had a chat on Twitter. And what did you say? I can't remember exactly what you said. Well, this was the thing. It was a bit of an awkward one because there was somebody who kept as you started the sentence for a joke, they started laughing <laughs> like that, and it was really putting me off. So I said, can you tell the person next to me to stop laughing before you've done the joke? But then you, at halftime, you were saying, where are you, Andrew? And I thought, I can't say now because the guy's going to know. Yeah, and make you feel self-conscious. And to be honest with you, the last thing I want, however he's laughing, even if it's like annoying laughing, is to stop <laughs> someone laughing uh, at a comedy gig. So yeah, you were right not to identify where you were. <laughs> uh, yeah. How was... um. John Ronson was on here a few weeks ago. He said he had a little date with you. How was that, Alanis Morissette? Yeah, it was good, although he then as is the case with any date that you have now, uh, texted me about uh, seven days later and said, oh, I've got COVID. I'm sorry, you might have COVID, <laughs> um, which I didn't. Uh, from I did, I did have it a bit soon after that from something else, obviously, I don't know what it was. But yeah, John had to send me a terrified message that he'd given me COVID. Uh, yes, John Ronson, who is a friend of mine, um, I was in America doing Seth Meyers' show, uh, remarkably Seth Meyers show had asked me to come on and talk about my book Juice Don't Count uh, and I've never done an American chat show I've <laughs> I've spent my whole life as a comedian not being invited on American chat shows late night chat shows I write a fairly serious book about Jews and boom I'm there about sort of six months later so that's interesting uh, but uh, so while I was there um, a friend, another friend of mine is the producer of Jagged Little Pill the Alanis Morissette musical and said you must come and see it uh, and so I asked John to come and see it with me. I said to John Ronson, being a big musicals guy, but he was quite keen. Uh, and it was really nice. It was really nice. We had uh, lunch at some American diet. It was a nice American day, even though, you know, I know he lives there, but he does, he's not very American, really, and neither am I, even though I was born there. Um, and it was like, yeah, I was born in America. I have dual citizenship, but I've lived my whole life in this country, so I don't feel particularly American. Uh Anyway, we went to a diner for lunch. We had burgers, and then we went to a Broadway show. It was really great, um, and it's a good show. Jagged Little Bill, I can recommend it. If you know, you have to sort of like Alanis Morissette, which I do. I'm not like the biggest fan, but her songs work really well. And Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno, um, she's a screenwriter. She wrote the book of Jagged Little Bill. It's really, really brilliant kind of clever book you're a I, I would say you're a household name in in the uk you're a very famous person here. i don't know how famous you are in america is it is it a relief to be able to, so you can walk down the street and that's okay oh yeah yeah i mean i can walk down the street in britain and it's okay although i will get people stopping me and saying a variety of things because i'm so old and my life has spanned so many genres uh i will get 
now walking down the street, obviously people saying, is it coming home? And if there's an actual tournament on, I'll just get that every five seconds. But I still get it at any point in the year. Someone saying, David, is it coming home? Uh, then I will get older people saying, you know, that's you, that is still, you know. <laughs> and most recently, I will get a lot of people saying, oh, David, I read your book, Jews Don't Count, and, you know, I have to say this about it or that about it or whatever. And those are three very different things, and it's kind of weird uh, to expect them. But no, I didn't get much of that in New York, um, I think I think one person, one British person who was there, did stop me. Um, so it is quite nice, yeah. It is quite nice. Actually, something that some I have to be honest with you, it's something I really like about masks. Um, that I I've always been quite pro masks uh, in terms of public health, but there is a sort of a special agenda that I have, which is I am. Think about me is however famous I am, I am just very recognisable. It's one of the things about fame. Right, like if I walk down the street with Frank Skinner, who is obviously also very famous, kind of probably equally famous because of our association, I will be recognised first because he's got a fairly, I don't know, he's just got a face. I've got a cartoon face, right? And people, the coordinates of my face. I mean, you're a very handsome Jew, Andrew. I've never really known what you look like, but you're very handsome, right? Uh, where, where you get you, out of here, Dave? That's my camera. No, no, you look great. Whereas I'm more of the Groucho Marx Jew, uh, the Groucho Marx comedy face Jew. And that is very easy for people to locate as a coordinate in their head. You're like, oh, that's David Baddiel, the guy with the glasses and the beard and whatever. And so, yeah, so the masks have really helped me in terms of, particularly, I go to Chelsea. I'm a Chelsea fan, right? It's brilliant. It's not being stopped on the way into the ground or indeed uh, shouted at by away fans. Is wearing a mask. Those are the ones you don't. You really probably don't want them shouting at you, football no. fans. No, no, it's really horrible. <laughs> it's not. It's not always horrible. That's unfair. But sometimes it is. I'm very tall. I'm like a. I'm like a six foot four, and I used to get the Stephen Merchant thing of like people would meet at me at like a party or something. So, and I was very skinny as well, very lanky. <laughs> We'll meet by Andrew Gold because he's like a tower. Well, they wouldn't know who I was, but you'd, you'd, I often, honestly, it was the only time, and I was, I was, and I'm not just saying this for sort of just to play down the handsome thing, but I was very spotty, geeky, lanky. I, I was very awkward, and that, that side of me was the Jewish side, I suppose, and just, just always like right. that, always hunched up. Um, and so, so the only time it, there would ever be girls sort of standing near me as a teenager, I used to think, oh, there's some girls around me here, and it would always be. They, a friend would come and meet them soon and be, ah, they're meeting by me. I'm the lamppost. So. Right, you're the Jewish lamppost. Um, <laughs> six foot four is, I'd say, that's a good height. I mean, it's tall, but um, you know, I know Stephen Merchant very well, and Richard Osman, I know pretty well, and I think both of them have a sense of being, you know, giants, basically, very tall people indeed. Uh, whereas I wonder if six foot four, you're just about on the edge of being very tall, but not freakishly tall yeah but i was this height when i was 13 i was this was my bar mitzvah height <laughs> we're making it so jewish now there's a type of there's a bar mitzvah height who even knew that was a thing uh yeah. wow that is yeah, that's pretty big for a 13 year old i have oh. to say i'm surprised they even had a talus that didn't look like a sort of little tiny scarf on you you should have said that must have been the t- <laughs> that's the most jewish joke anyone's ever made the talus <laughs> on you it must have looked like it was just a sort of you know uh serviette or something yeah both not, yeah Oh man, yeah. you can't imagine like the awkwardness there. I was so hunched and awkward and all that. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna do an even more Jewish joke. Go on, right? Uh, which none of your listeners who aren't Jewish will get. Is did you do Muftir and half taller? What's Muftir and half taller? I know those names. What is that? Oh, you didn't get it. No, the joke I did was I said <laughs> Muftir and half taller. That was the joke. Okay. Well, what people do? Okay, so but <laughs> Andrew didn't even get it. So we'll have to cut this joke. Or I'll, I'll explain it. <sighs> if 
when you yeah. do uh, when you're a bar mitzvah when you have your bar mitzvah you can just read a parsha it's called that's just a portion of the torah of the old testament and you do that but if you're a bit good at it which of course i was because i was a bit swatty you do a sort of longer bit which is called muftir and half torah uh, and it's a sort of bit do you not hear that does that, that not ring any bells i probably did it but i don't i don't i could do the whole thing i can go i could do the whole bloody thing it's all in there it's all is it really no, a tiny bit is a tiny bit at the tiny beginning. Is, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. How old are you? How old are you? Thirty-two. Right, so you should have forgotten your bits. <laughs> yeah, just to buy now. Otherwise, it's a bit sad. But uh, yeah, no, that, that you, you might have done it. But anyway, that's just, if you're a sort of like star permits for class people, you do mafter and haftorah. I feel people are turning off in their droves from on the. They're edge. not. It's they called on it. the edge. This is the least edgy. We could be talking about the least edgy was Daniel Finkelstein. I don't even know why I asked him on. That was right at the beginning. It's the least edgy kind of person. He's you know? great though. Yeah. I'll... Oh yeah, he's great. He's very unedgy. Yeah. He's a very, very, very nice man. Uh, yeah. I mean, actually, Daniel Finkelstein. I, I like him a lot in general, but he is also a good example of something. Which I guess if we were going to get a bit more edgy, uh, which is that um, I hate the fact that we live in a culture where. You know, if someone has slightly different politics to you, you're supposed to revile them entirely and they're a terrible person or whatever. And of course, Daniel Finkelstein is a Tory peer, which is not my politics. But, you know, the idea that that would make me sort of revile him as a person is just idiotic and inhuman uh, and simplistic. So, you know, but I mean, I think he has positioned himself very much as the sort of nice Tory, the nice Tory peer. I was going to say he's very sort of centrist, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so that wasn't an edge. Why is it called on the edge? Is it actually edgy? Your podcast? Well, we've had, okay. So I've ha- I say we- I always say we as if like I've got a whole. T- it's just me sat here. Like it makes it sound bigger. Yeah, it's just you in your house. Yeah, it's just me yeah. sat in like a plonker. But it's uh, we uh, I yeah well well okay. So I've had a guy who had to eat his friends when he landed in a, a, cra- a plane crash landing. So that was quite edgy. That's quite edgy. Literally. That is quite edgy. Yeah. Did he actually eat them? He had to eat his mates. Yeah. How many? <laughs> Um, that's the obvious question, isn't it? Like, you know, what we were breakfast, lunch, and dinner here. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know what? They were frozen. He couldn't even cook them, and no, uh, he, he couldn't to, microwave them. He had to sort of like peck at like frozen bits of flesh. Peck, oh, God. peck at frozen mates. Oh, oh, didn't they? Didn't they defrost? Like, once he took them out of the fridge, as it were. No, well, he was. He and, didn't have a fridge in the in the Andes. And it was very he high was. up. Oh wow! You know the you know the story. It was the, um, that one. Well, you know, I've the, heard, I don't know the specific story. I've certainly heard various stories about people who are stranded in X, Y, or Z places, and yeah, have to eat. Well, actually, often it's it's sort of bits of themselves. Oh, uh, oh. But, yeah, but that's what I've heard. But yeah, I I don't know this specific story. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in how much mates yet. Yeah. Like, did he eat a whole mate? Or <laughs> he, was, just... he was there 72 days, so it was a lot of mates. Oh, wow. Yeah. How is he now, this person? He's, uh, yeah, he's that all right. That should lead to PTSD of sorts. If anything should lead to PTSD, he seemed fine. He seemed all right. He seemed fine. He was just sort of, you know, he's he's, uh, he's from Uruguay. Uh, was it Uru- yeah, he's from Uruguay. He's just loving his, loves his meat out there, I guess, but not that kind of meat. I didn't ask him what it tasted like. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you? Pork, everyone says, which for Jews is a problematic thing. <laughs> it, I mean, it's not kosher, is it? I bet it's not kosher, human human flesh. So that that's a, that's a question for an Orthodox Jew. Would you not eat your mate if you were on a plane crash in the Andes because it's not kosher? Yes. But, yeah, 
I, I probably would eat. I would definitely eat my mate. If I mean, if they were dead, if they were dead already, just to be clear, they were dead. Yes. So it's you. Yeah. yeah how long dead. do you think it would take? Well, like, once you've landed, what to eat your mate? Yeah. Uh, well, I'd, I'd investigate other options. <laughs> yeah. I'd have a look around for sort of you know birds and yeah. uh, plant life. I'd start with plant life because you know I'd like to be plant based. <laughs> but but if none of that was available because I'm so high up and there's no birds or I can't catch any and there is lying about some human you know uh, dead flesh, uh, yeah, I, I, there's no question that one would eat that. Uh, I I don't like the idea of eating it frozen and raw. I, I definitely. I would definitely be thinking once I've got over the moral quandary, shit, I wish there was a proper stove and maybe some spices, rice, you know, something I could, onions, something I could mix this up with. Well, spices is another issue because, like, you don't want to have a tummy issue out there in the in the Andes or anything. You don't, although I suspect eating frozen dead mate will give you a tummy issue. <laughs> and, know. you know, I think ha- doing a terrible shit as a result of it is probably lesser in your you know concerns out there about probably going to die than then you know everything else you are known for <laughs> you're known for terrible shits um and i, and I don't i mean that just that's because a, <laughs> no it's one of the things am i and one of the things yeah <laughs> you listen to the podcast you listen to ricky joe's podcast where somehow or other I ended up talking about that every time i i honestly i've never i've never laughed so much in my life honestly walking down the street i remember exactly where i was walking down the street and just i i had a fit because it was that funny. Ah, which which one was it? Because there are so many of them. Don't even remember. I was just, I was just looking up before you came. I was looking up David Badil shit himself on Google. And I, couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't find the story. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, there are lots of them. Uh, lot, there are lots of them. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random 
IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Is that, did I tell the one about the, the going to the BBC? Because that is an extraordinary story. <laughs> what was that? I think I probably did tell it. Um, but well, so to be clear to anyone listening, I, for some reason on Ricky's show, told quite a lot of stories about unfortunate sharting and whatever over the course of my life. Uh, there was one famous one about like when, when I when my children were young and they were the ones who were supposed to be doing that. Uh, I found myself having eaten. In fact, it was like I'd eaten some frozen meat at a restaurant because I was sort of slightly too embarrassed about, I'd asked for it to be cooked a bit more rare. And when it came back, it was frozen. And I was too embarrassed to send it back a second time. I ate it. We were on our way to the Be- uh, Bethnal Green Toy Museum and I had a shart problem. Uh, and then my three-year-old child said, Daddy, when I have a, think I need a poo, I put my hand under my bottom. Uh, and I said, it's too late for that. <laughs> too late for that, Dolly. Uh, anyway, that's one of the famous ones. But one I don't, I'm not sure I have told, which is an extraordinary story, although tell me if this is the one that made you have a fit and you don't have to tell it again. I was, I was talking to my wife about this the other day because she was asking me to remind her because she likes hearing it. Because I went for a meeting at the BBC once um and uh the that was the, the time when it was no longer that the bbc had offices you had to sort of find a desk um and the woman i was having the meeting with uh was there and she pointed at this sort of room that she managed to get and you were going to have the meeting in there now the night before i'd had quite a big curry um and it was starting to you know come at me and i thought I don't think I can go straight into the meeting. I think I need to go to the toilet first. So I just waved and I, yeah, I'm just going to the loo. And then I was in the loo for maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> so she's in there clearly thinking, he just said he's going to do what's happened. And what happened was this curry had gone wrong, all right, really badly. So then it's not over, right? Then I think, no. oh God, you know, it, 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 it's in a terrible state, the toilet. Uh, I'm going to have to sort this out. Uh, so I, I try and get hold of the toilet brush. But the toilet brush, as is sometimes the case, was quite sticky in the thing, right? So I'm pulling at the toilet brush, I'm pulling at the toilet brush, and it comes out in a, in a huge you know, pull, and all this shitty water comes out with it all over my feet, all over my shoes. Right? Before, so I'm going to have this meeting, I've got shit all over my shoes, right? So then I'm ages clearing up the toilet, trying to clear up my shoes, but there's flecks of shit all over them. And then I come out... And I go into this meeting where this person has been waiting for me. And I'm just about to apologise and possibly even apologise about the flakes of shit. And she says, I invited the controller of, <laughs> of, of the controller of BBC4, it was. Uh, and he's clearly been sitting there with her oh. for 20 minutes, with her saying, it'll be out any minute. I'm sure I can imagine the toilet. I don't know. I don't know why he's being so long. And, uh, and I just thought, oh, God, this the worst thing that's ever happened. And oh. so, yeah, that's that's that story. But there's there's many of them. I was almost tempted to say, like, oh, well, maybe it's okay because you're David. And if, if it was somebody at the beginning of their careers going in. But I actually don't think it is better. I think it's almost worse. It is worse, yeah. It's worse, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it all stems from the fact that I, like, Morwenna, my wife, is always saying, like, if we, but we don't actually go for dinner that often to people's houses, possibly because of people who are aware of these things. But the very odd occasion that we do, or we're going, Morwenna says, look, don't have a shit. 
Like, like yes. other people, if they need a shit and they're in someone else's houses, they hold it back. They don't do it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, if I need a shit, I'll have to have a shit. I won't be able. I won't be able to focus on anything else. So I'm going to have to do that, right? And then, and that's where it starts to go wrong because you, know, yeah. you never know what might happen once that yeah. begins. Exactly. I, I wonder if there's like a male versus female difference here because women. I've, or I'm just thinking of my. You know what? I shouldn't talk about my girlfriend's poo on on the podcast, but not that she does do that but but for me if i have to go it's like and she doesn't understand and she says what do you mean just do it later and i'm like no 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 no. you don't get it and there's many times no i wonder if it's a jewish thing (laughs) i I think it's a jewish thing i do think it's a jewish thing because jews are not good with physical discomfort i mean (laughs) given that we have been persecuted over many years in terrible ways it's it's amazing how unstoic we are uh you know because i i can't bear any form of physical discomfort and that you know, as I get older and I need, for example, to wee more often. Like I did a radio show last night and I weed twice before it because I thought I'm definitely going to need a wee halfway through. And despite that, I still did need needed a wee halfway through. And I was pretty good on the radio show. But for the second half, I was just thinking, I need a wee, I need a wee, I need a wee, you know, because I can't, like, I, I feel Gentiles are better at putting that stuff outside of their heads. I'm not good. I just, you know, and so the idea that my Gentile wife says, like, can we, can you not? go for a shit in this person's house. I kind of think that's what their toilet is for. Why can't I do that? (laughs) That's a good point. I think half of my conversations with my girlfriend are about her saying, please don't shit here. And the amount of times I come back in restaurants and I've said, we've got to go. Come on, before... Yeah, that happens to me as well. I mean, I mean, I've been in... Pub- I mean, this is very toilet you know, but I've been in public toilets, in restaurant toilets or whatever, and thought, okay, there is no way of clearing that up. <laughs> You know, you know, I mean, you know, they don't, I mean, for a start, quite often they don't have it. I hate toilet brushes anyway. I kind of think, like, how have we got this far? We've put a man on the moon, right? But we can't find a better way. I think the Japanese have done it, but ever, everywhere else, of cleaning a toilet, apart from this sort of terrible, shitty toothbrush that is by the side of the thing, that's horrible. And toilet paper. And rubbish. toilet paper. Yeah, well, yeah, it's all rubbish. And if, if you've had a bit of a difficult one, none of those tools are good enough for for making good making good the space right i mean you know when, when people talk about that with builders they say okay you know we're gonna knock down this wall they're gonna make it good right and that maybe takes two days right i think i could spend two days after i've been in the toilet and it still wouldn't be made good right so yeah, yeah. No, sometimes it's best just to leave it's also like at school i feel like there needs to be a lesson one day of like okay what to do when this happens but it's not it's just brushed under the carpet and you never know mm. there's no you couldn't go out and say excuse me i'm so sorry i don't want somebody else to have to clean this up it's not yeah. it's not really their job but it's sort of it and what what yeah. can you there's nothing you can do no no well you can talk about it on comedy podcasts that's all you can do yeah that, that's all you can do to liberate yourself from the shame and guilt of it I'm so happy we got to talk about this because that what I did want to talk about shit. And obviously, I, I got you to come on here under under the, the false pretenses of actually talking about serious things. I guess that's edgy. <laughs> In a way, that's edgy. There you go. Exactly. I am yeah. getting someone on to talk about that soon, actually. I, you're, uh, he's some guy who talks about necrophilia and, and that yeah. sort of, yeah, so all sorts of things like that. So, so, I didn't, so, so it really is edgy, your podcast. It's like half and half because often I'll have the people who are very centrist talking about those yeah. edges. Like, you don't, oh, look, it's yeah. somebody who's centrist might talk about very right wing extremists or racism on left and right and all that stuff. And then there'll be like a psychopath. There was this neuroscientist who I really liked who he was a, he was a neuroscientist his whole life. And then when he was 70, he was looking at these brain scans of uh, his family because he was looking into dementia to see if his family might. And he saw one, he went, oh my God, this person's a psychopath. And it was him. And he realised he was a psychopath, and so I got him right. on. So it's that kind of. But then also you yeah. and John Ronson. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all right. 
Yeah, Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox. So the other day, um, uh, you will probably have seen, uh, I went a bit viral uh, talking about Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, I was on Good Morning Britain uh, and I was talking about um, the misconceptions uh, in Whoopi Goldberg's idea that the Holocaust wasn't about race. Uh, and that went viral. And lots of people, it's been amazing, actually. Lots of people have got in touch with me. Amy Schumer and David Schwimmer and the head of the ADL, the Defamation League, uh, have all got in touch with me about it. But I have to say, I was coming back from something and I was you know, narcissistically checking my phone to see who had liked or retweeted it recently. And Amanda Knox had. And that was so left field. I thought, amazing. Amanda Knox, uh, Foxy Noxy, has liked my thing about anti-Semitism. That's that's so weird. But you know what? I told her. So you've interviewed her? It's, yeah, she was on uh, a few weeks ago. And I do the whole spiel right. of, you know, uh, oh, John Ronson was just on. She goes, John Ronson was at my wedding. And I go, oh, right. Well, that's oh, funny. Wow. And he's everywhere, John oh. Ronson. Um, he and, is everywhere. And, and uh, then I said, and, and next week is I'm interviewing David Baddiel. So maybe that, maybe that got her. Maybe that led, yes, because she didn't say he was at my wedding. She said, who? Presumably. <laughs> I don't remember what she yeah. said about because I said all the names at once and she went oh John Ronson was at my wedding and all that you know Foxy Noxy comes from from her being a footballer it was it was her soccer nickname oh was it oh I didn't know that um no I didn't know that I didn't even know she played soccer um but I have watched a couple of I should know that because I've watched a couple of Netflix documentaries about her she's someone who quite a lot of documentaries are made about or whatever um I mean you know I what did you did you what did she talk about just was she on to talk about uh, about about like uh, her into whole uh, the way she's judged because of how she looked and all and did she do it or not and all that stuff. I'm on her. She's got her own podcast. So I'm going on that tonight. Oh, wow. So to- tonight. Wow. Mm. Okay. Well, thank her for liking. I don't know if she retweeted or just liked it. I can't remember. But you know, liking my video about, <laughs> about anti-Semitism. It was such. A, it was such a weird thing though because you've seen as 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 you're saying you see all the documentaries and she's got those piercing electric eyes and you're looking the whole time going did she do it and then she suddenly she's across the screen from me looking at me and I'm going bloody hell. it was very scary. I think in general, and I don't know obviously because I'm not a detective, but I think in general, it is the case that when these things happen uh, in a tiny place. I've been to Perugia, actually. I I, <laughs> I studied at the Università Pestranieri, which she did as well. I did it about 30 years before her. Um, but when these things happen in a small place like Perugia or wherever, um, then the local police force feel the weight of the fact the world's press are on them, and they're very, very keen to say, we've got someone, we've got someone, because if they haven't, it feels like they've failed in some way. Um, and that, combined with the fact that she is very attractive, and that always leads to weird misogyny and, you know, over-fetishization of that woman and whatever. Those two things together, I think, make it a kind of perfect storm, uh, which is very little to do with the murder of Meredith Kircher. Yeah, well, I should clarify, when I say scary, I just mean because of the years of watching her in that. And I, I originally thought she must have done it because everyone thought that, well, at least right at the beginning. I never thought that. I literally never thought that. Sorry, not because I'm a better person than you, but I just thought, <laughs> I just thought... You know, clearly this is another one of those cases. You see a few of them. I mean, there were quite a few people, you know, who were sort of initially Madeleine McCann. Everyone was certain it was this person or that person. And then I thought the same thing. This is just the local police force desperate to say who it was. And there are other ones, in fact, all of them are now documentaries on Netflix or ones like you, I, I hadn't heard of. There was a kid who was killed in France. I can't remember the name of, of the child, but it was a massive case in France in the 80s. Uh, and they all, it was decided that the you know mum did that. 
And she was quite attractive. She was also quite attractive. Um, and the judge had become slightly obsessed with her. Uh, and, you know, I just felt, you know, this is, this is a recurring loop for attractive women who are sort of, you know, in, in this position. Not to say that that to me, they can't do it, but it, it, is, a, it is a sort of meme. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, well, there you go. I mean, I was a teenager when the Amanda Knox stuff came out. So for me, it was just... I right, don't, don't I rub don't... it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about, you were talking about Whoopi Goldberg. She said she said the Holocaust was whites fighting whites. Hmm. Yeah. Well, she said a number of things. Uh, that in a way, it was very revealing. It's very revealing uh, in terms of... I mean, it's a number of things that are absolutely sort of bang on, in a way, in terms of the misconceptions that I try and unearth in Jews Don't Count. Uh, and, you know, it's a central part of the Jews Don't Count project that anti-Semitism is racism, which, by the way, is sort of a, a, a bigger thing to get over in America than it is here. I mean, I think there's a problem here as well, uh, because I think, you know, the word anti-Semitism and the separation of it from racism is a problem because people don't quite want to see anti-Jewish racism as quite the same level as other racisms. And part of that, which is in Whoopi Goldberg's thing, is a notion that it's not about race, it's about religion, which, as I've said many times, is completely wrong because I'm an atheist and the Gestapo would shoot me tomorrow. My great uncle who was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto was not an observer. Jew. It's, it hasn't been about religion, persecution of Jews since about the 14th century. And even then, I'm not sure it was really about religion, because if you look at, say, the Jews who were massacred in York in 1190, uh, 150 Jews were killed in Clifford's Tower because uh, they refused to convert and they committed suicide. And there was a mob outside. So you might think, well, that's religious persecution. But nine or 10 Jews went outside and said they would convert. They were killed anyway because basically that mob hated Jews, because they were Jews, right? So the, the, the whole notion that it's about religious intolerance is sort of nonsense. Uh, it's about people just hating this other race. Uh, and then there's this other thing, which is very important, which is the whiteness of Jews, the notion that Jews are white, um, which I don't want to go over the whole thing, because I've said this a lot, but my idea is, is that Jews are Schrodinger's whites, by which I mean they're white or non-white, depending on the politics of the observer, uh, which means that far-right people think of Jews as white, uh, as very non-white, as very not part of the Aryan white races, whereas uh, progressive people seem to see Jews sometimes as sort of super white. But the key element of it all is this notion, this association of Jews with power. But Jews are sort of never quite seen as victims, uh, that they're always somehow powerful. So that she starts talking about the Holocaust even as if it's an equivalence. She talks about white on white. That implies an equivalence. She talks about two sides fighting. That implies an equivalence. I suppose what we're actually talking about here, which is uh, a military industrial machine genociding an ethnic group of civilians. And that's not an equivalence. It's it's a really it's really I've really started thinking a lot about since reading Jews Don't Count, and I I, mean, I think you are. I mean, I, I want to thank you actually because uh, I think something you touch on in the book as well is like a lot of shame that Jewish people feel. I think a lot of people who are not Jewish don't realize that, and you even get a lot of people who aren't Jewish who start saying like, "Oh, you're lucky. I wish I was Jewish," and they don't mean it in a horrible way, but they sort of they don't mean because I would have all the advantages. They just mean like they like something about it, like it's some sort of exclusive club. Uh, and I grew up just you know my dad changed his name from Goldstein to gold to be less jewish um and and we, i'm always sort of trying to hide that scared of it and, and your twitter profile just says jew which which feels like a bad word doesn't it why does it feel like a bad word well i talk about that in jews don't count uh which is you know it's the only word as far as i'm aware uh in the language that you can add a suffix to or suffix or prefix no it's a suffix ish and it changes the whole character of the word 
you know, uh, it's, it's a long story and Jews don't count involving quoting from a previous book. So I'm not going to tell that story. But basically, yes, if you change the word um, from if you say Jewish woman, it's fine. If you say Jew woman, it sounds really awful. Right. And that's because the word itself has this deep burial in Christian sort of ang- sort of Anglo-Christian culture as a bad word, you know, as the deep, deep uh, villainous of the word. And thus, my attempt to call myself Jew, I tend to use Jew all the time around Jew, is a kind of reclamation. But it's a complicated reclamation because I'm aware that people continue to use it in a negative way. Uh, but that's interesting about your shame, yeah. I mean, in terms of the reaction to the book, you know, the book is targeted i guess it's kind of a critique of uh, progressives right i guess mainly non-jewish progressives uh, in their sense that identity politics and the focus on race and all types of discrimination has left out jewish concern and jewish representation and whatever but what i kind of it what it also is and what it's had a big response i think is a bit of a critique of jews especially british jews for their sort of inability to sort of come out and talk about this and mobilise as a community. I mean, they did a bit during the Corbyn years. But as I think I say in the book, someone once said to me that the headline of the Jewish Chronicle every week, if you were to boil it down, would be, they hate us. I said, no, 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 it's not that. It's, they hate us and let's not make a fuss about it. Right? That That's the headline of the Jewish Chronicle because Jew, British Jews are quite reserved and very want to be very assimilated and don't want to draw attention to their Jewishness. But what's weird about that is that if we're talking about how you fight racism and, you know, anti-Jewish racism is incredibly on the rise. You know, we are actually the most targeted group for hate crime in the world at the moment. Uh, online conspiracy theories completely right and all that kind of stuff. If you want to fight racism, the way to do that is not, in fact, to hide. Right? The way to do that is to come out and say, right, we're Jewish and we feel that all this stuff is happening to us. Let's talk about it and let's ally with other you know, groups who are fighting racism and all the rest of it. It's visibility now that you know, uh, allows for people to fight racism. But still, still a lot of Jews aren't certain about that. It's interesting, actually. I did a thing for the Vancouver Jewish Book Festival. My life has changed as writing Jews don't count. That's the kind of event I'm doing now. Uh, and I did it with this woman called Dara Hall, who's written a book called People Love Dead Jews. Uh, and it's a brilliant book. It's an amazing book. It's really about how, if, to boil it down, it's sort of about how the reverence for you know the Jews killed in the Holocaust or whatever creates a space in which people think, right, we've done that, now we can hate live Jews, right? Um, and it's sort of an amazing book, but the thing that, it's very different from mine, but there's a one similarity. Uh, and Dara Horn is, uh, she lives in New Jersey, she's quite religious, she's completely different from me in some ways, but it's completely unashamed about being Jewish. That's, that her book and my book have got in, in tandem. It, it really says, fuck you with your Jewish shame to Jews and to people who would impose that on Jews. So, so I love it for that. And I've always been like that. You know what? You know, people say, oh, you must be so proud of being Jewish. I'm not particularly. What I am is incredibly true to myself in every respect. That's why I've told you so many stories about shitting badly, right? Uh, only someone who is not at all ashamed. I don't really have the shame gene can do that, right? And in, in the truth about myself is Jewishness, right? It's definitely a big part of me. So... Uh, why would I hide it? Because I don't hide anything about myself. No, I like that. And it's giving me, I have a lot of shame in it, but it's giving, it's giving me, and I, I imagine a lot of can other... Can I ask you, can I ask you, sorry, I'm just going to ask you. No, please. 
that's very interesting about the Goldstein thing. If you read People Love Dead Jews, there's a whole chapter on Jews changing their name and how they make stuff up about how their name was changed in order to, like there's this whole thing about, oh, in Ellis Island, they made a mistake or whatever. It's all bollocks. Jews change their name because they're frightened uh, or they think they won't get jobs or whatever, or that people won't like them or whatever. Uh, what What is the nature of your shame? You actually examined it. Why... Why are you ashamed? I think the I think they're all things that won't they won't surprise you, uh, and and then that they're not. I shouldn't feel that, and I, I'm aware of that. I'm not suggesting I should feel ashamed, but from being a teenager and growing up, where every you know, of course, Israel Palestine was mentioned a lot, and of course, I'm aware that that's nothing to do with me. There's that. There's also this idea that anything I do, any success I might have in life people would think, aha, because he's Jewish. Even though I actually also feel that when I email a commissioner, say, with a pitch, I'm thinking, I wish my name didn't sound Jewish because I think it's... And I have I have been told many times, I have an agent, I made documentaries as a presenter as well, and I've been told meeting after meeting um, that unfortunately, if you want to do this idea, you've got to be behind the camera and we'll get a minority, someone from a minority on. And for the first few years of being told that, I sort of nodded like, oh, okay, okay. And then I started saying, well, you know, I'm Jewish. Jewish. And that inspired laughter, derision, people like, because <laughs> they thought I was joking. They thought I genuinely was. So I just sort of left it at that. So there's that. And there's also the sort of nebbishness, uh, you know, the way Jews have been portrayed. And no, I'm not talking Larry David, because he's cool, because he's funny. But I'm thinking about, you know, you've seen it, you watch a movie, and you're like, ah, that guy's the Jewish guy. Uh, there was one the other day. Who was it? Someone was called Goldberg, and it was like, "Why are you?" There was a British. There was a British uh, one of those crime series in the middle of nowhere where there definitely wouldn't be a Jewish guy. And the head of the police, who's the evil guy the whole time, is this geeky, quite unattractive, and his name's Goldberg. And I thought, why have they done that? Do you know what I mean? So it's all of that combined is the shame. Yeah, I mean, everything you said, right, is imposed on you. You know that, right? Uh, no, none of that comes from an actual internal sense of what your Jewishness is. Sorry, I don't wish to over-psychoanalyze you, but you've literally said there was a film, uh, film, people said this to me in meetings, blah, 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 blah. So what that means is you have been racialized, right? This is not about your actual ethnic identity, whatever that might be. It's about your notion of people are thinking this, people are thinking that, and so therefore I'm shrinking from that. And obviously there's reasons why you might do that. I'm, not, I'm really not judging you for that. Um, it's just that... I would say that, um, and maybe it's just because, you know, no, if you, in a way, the minority I sometimes think you have to compare us to, uh, even though there's a lot of talk about race or whatever, is gays. That's what I always think. I always, I always think that, like, it's possible, presumably, I mean, we know it's in years past for gays to feel shame about being gay, and also it's possible for gays to pass, you know, and all that stuff that Jews can. But now you would say, certainly within the progressive conversation, most gays would be proud about being gay, would be out about being gay, uh, and would feel that, you know, uh, the uh, promotion of gay pride as a thing is a way of combating whatever residual, you know, awful ideas about and homophobia would be in our culture. Why don't Jews think like that? Why would they not think like that? Yeah, well, that's sort of what Jews Don't Count is about. Uh, but it's really, it's odd that Jews so internalise the shame uh, this sort of weird thing. I mean, it might be because of the this thing that I do bang on about a lot, and you sort of mentioned it a little bit with the Israel-Palestine thing or, or, or whatever, that Jews buy this racist idea that we are, in fact, the oppressors or we are, in fact, the, the rich people, we are, in fact, the powerful people. And so, therefore, and, and other minorities don't have that. There's no other minority who has that. And so, therefore, we feel like, oh, well, we better 
keep it under a bushel because we don't want people to think that we're sort of already superior in some way. Uh, but that's also a racist idea. It's also a racist idea that Jews are powerful. And, and what was great in your book as well is something, because I do internalise that exact shame you're talking about, in your book you do, and it shouldn't matter, but I, I it does, uh, I think, is that you you put up statistics of the rich list um you know in like something like 50 56% of multimillionaires are christian 6.5% muslim 4% hindu uh and like 1.5% jewish uh, and jews are not pro rata the highest earning group and that to me was a shock and it came as a relief and it shouldn't matter yeah well no, exactly you see yeah well i was hesitant about putting that bit up because i thought it doesn't it's you know why am i needing to prove this and i thought you know it will have impact, so I guess I should do it in terms of, you know, deconstructing the myth that Jews are somehow or other all wealthy. And I, I bang on about a lot about how, you know, you hear a lot about Jews are rich and therefore that everything follows from that as to why we can't treat them like a vulnerable minority or whatever. But then I said this other thing, which is actually more important and very un-Marxist and very, you know, not said anymore, which is fuck off about money is what I say, because money doesn't protect you from racism. You know, my grandparents were rich. They were a rich um, industrialist family from a place called Königsberg in East Prussia. Uh, and, uh, you know, their entire family was murdered and everything they had was taken away. So the notion that somehow or other, well, we don't need to worry about, you know, that because the, the racism or discrimination takes many forms. And it wouldn't be true, I think, to say that Jews suffer exactly the same structural racism that some people of colour do suffer from in terms of employment opportunities and all the rest of it. Um, but what we suffer from is, a, is its own type of racism, part of which is that, part of which is a, a, a mythic creation of envy around Jews. This notion that Jews are, are you know, see, you see it all the time, that the associated Jews with money is, is sort of, there's this bit in the book where I talk about how some people even talk about that, like, no, 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 I, this means I like Jews because I think they're shrewd or I think they're clever or whatever. And you think like, no, no, what you mean is you think Jews have somehow secretly got hold of this money and that they shouldn't have it and their houses should be burned down. You may be not saying that and you maybe don't even think it in your head, but that's what that thinking leads to. Hey, have you got hair growing on your face? Well, percentage wise, it's been estimated by scientists that many of you do. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm among them. Hair grows day and night out of my facial follicles, clogging up my pores, stopping me from breathing and giving me a somewhat bedraggled and haggard look. And there was nothing I could do about it. Well, until now. Harry's is a wonderful company that has something called a razor. You can sign up to get your trial pack, which includes a a weighted handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, And if you're going on holiday like I am, there's also a travel blade cover in there. But what's also interesting about Harry's is they send you shower gel because they're all about shaving in the shower, combining the routine, which is a bit of a life hack. I've taken to brushing my teeth there too, and I'd do these podcasts in the shower if the acoustics weren't so bad. You can't really hear a good shave. So you'll have to trust me that I've had some of the best shower shaves of my life with Harry's. That's the razor, not a group of men called Harry, though they'd be welcome any time. Support the podcast. I think it helps me in the approval ratings with ads and stuff like that by redeeming the trial set. It's free with £3.95 delivery. Just go to harrys.com slash on the edge. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash on the edge. 
so horrible. And that, that gave me that shame and that gave me that thing. You know, I didn't want to, as you say, I didn't want to have any success because it would be like, oh, yeah, well, another one yeah. who's probably got all these contacts. I don't have any contacts. I don't know anyone. I, I, no, you, and there's no one in your house. Look at your house. I mean, really, it's quite clear. Things, I live things, in, you, know, you are not in the meetings that we're all having to sort out our power. And that, that's because you changed your name from Goldstein. If you hadn't done that, you'd be in there. In my most shameful moments, there has been that split second of, what if they are all doing it and I was left out? That would just be typical. I was the one Jew <laughs> yeah. they left out of the global conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, what, I mean, it is amazing that because Jews, as anyone who's actually Jewish knows, can't organise anything, let alone control of the world. Right? It's impossible for Jews to agree where to go for a Chinese meal. And also, I think what people are very... This is a very basic thing. My wife talks about it a lot. She, she says she thinks people think there's a lot of Jews in the world or in Britain or whatever. There are 2.280,000 Jews in Britain, something like that. Um, there's like really few Jews in Britain. It's a tiny minority. And there aren't that many Jews in the world. It's a very, it's a very, very small minority. But I think because people think they control the world, they have a notion that there's loads of them everywhere. You know, and that you know, and also that it's very complicated the idea of Jewish success because Jews are successful in some ways. You know, Jews. I mean, you know, as we know, Jews something like twenty-two percent of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, right? But what happens then is that Jews don't want to talk about that too much because, in case it creates a sense of like, well, you know, that's Jews sort of bragging or Jews somehow being given advantages that led to that or whatever. No, we should be proud of it. Yeah, very few Premier League footballers. That's true. Very few Premier League football, although there was Ronnie Rosenthal. <laughs> there was Ronnie Rose. And Not Avi British Cohen. Jews, though. Who? No, uh, British... Avi Cohen, he was also, I think, an Israeli. I remember Burke, the Berkovitches. Ronnie was Israeli. Israeli, so he's Israeli as well, yeah. Uh, and then there was... Uh, what's that guy who played for Chelsea? I've forgotten his name. I just know the two. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Ben A... Not Ben... Ben yeah, Ayoun. Yossi Ben Ayoun. Um, yeah. But yes, but they tend to be Israeli. Uh, yeah. And I don't know that there's been that many British Jews. We probably could find it if we Googled it. I don't think there Let's are. not do that now. But, yeah. <laughs> but so so the, where it gets complicated is, is a, as you say, it's where there is sort of a, a success in certain areas. And I think people, some people listening, I'm hearing their voices again shaming me and shaming yeah. us. Some people yeah. will be going, but they're all over the TV and that kind of thing. And as you point out in the book, in British TV, that's not really the case. They're not all over TV in general. They're not all over TV in general. Well, let me tell you something. I'm doing a Jews Don't Count documentary, which you might think is Jews all over television, but not really, uh, because it's happened as a result of a very successful book being having interest from the from TV people. But but here's the thing: there is no question that if I was uh, from another minority and I was doing a TV show about that minority and you know its status within identity politics or whatever it might be, uh, there would be a very uh, big attempt on the part of the channel and the production team to make sure that everyone who worked on that was from the same minority or a lot of people, director, producers, researchers or whatever. We can't find any Jews to work on the Jews Don't Count documentary. Literally can't find all these Jews in television. Where are they? We can't find a Jewish director. We can't find uh, you know Jewish producers. We can't you know it's it's with at the moment the project is with Louis Theroux's company. Louis Theroux is not Jewish. I mean you know he's something of a Jewish ally. I would say because if you saw this program where he goes and sees American Nazis some years ago, they start think thinking he might be, and he refuses to tell them either way, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. But he's not Jewish, um, and. He has said, oh, we should find a Jewish director. You know, Louis Theroux has said that, uh, but we're struggling to find one because 
there aren't that many, despite this notion that they're all over showbiz. Wow, that's Mindhouse, isn't it? He, it's funny because Louis obviously was a big hero of mine because I started making those kind of documentaries and stuff. So I've talked about him quite a lot. And then people are, are shocked that he's not Jewish. And uh, and I, so is that what it is as well? It's just people going, oh, there's Jews everywhere because they assume that a lot of people are Jewish who are not. Well, maybe there are a few, yeah, like that, I guess. I mean... When Barry Cryer died, uh, I mean, not not that he's all over the place and powerful, because uh, he was just a sweet old comedian, but uh, I noticed loads of people saying, oh, he was Jewish, and eventually I had to correct that, because Barry had actually phoned me, uh, saying he'd read about three months ago, saying he'd read Jews Don't Count and loved it, and did I know people always thought he was Jewish? And this, he told me this funny story, uh, about which is interesting in terms of shame, uh, about how uh, the local paper, his local newspaper, I think he was in quite a Jewish area, in fact, Hatch End, which probably added to it. He said his local Jewish paper once did an article about him uh, and said that he was Jewish. And he actually he rang them to say, just so, just so you know, I, I'm not. And they said, oh, do you want us to print an apology? <laughs> <I> saw you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and he told me that. And it really made me laugh. It just, And he knew it would make me laugh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, people, there are people like him and indeed Louis, who I think people think are Jewish. And not, I don't think that's deeply racist, but I think there is an element of like, oh, yeah, there's this famous story, or not that famous, but Martin Amis, who is actually someone who is probably in the band of people who would like to be Jewish. He's sort of very much, you know, he's a bit of a philo Semite. But my point is that Kingsley Amis was an anti-Semite, right? Uh, and Martin Amis talks about this in his book Experience. He says he wasn't like a massive anti-Semite, but he was the sort of person, in terms of what we're talking about, who in the credits to a TV show while they were running would say, yeah, there's another one. And, and Kings the Amos would do that. Uh, and that's a kind of British sort of distaste, clubbable anti-Semitism, I think. Um, but no, Martin, Martin Amos loves Saul Bellow and, you know, blah, 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 and has a, you know, is a big fan of Jewish novel, novelists and stuff. Not actually a very big fan of Philip Ross, but he likes other ones. Um, but yeah, no, uh, he's not Jewish. So maybe you're stuck, you're stuck with an idea of too many people being Jewish who are not. I think I am. I think I am. So it's, it is good to be disabused of that notion, I think. Um, and another... a few more, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you with my, with my very strong Jadar. Well, look, I mean, in, in England, there's, there's, there's you... And, That's and as you, basically it. <laughs> in terms of in terms of like the very much self identifying and proud. I mean, the other, Simon Amstel is the other I would always yeah. think of. Yeah. So no, there's loads. I mean, as I say in my book, there's quite a lot of Jewish comedians and Jewish people in the show business, but there's not very many who make being Jewish like I have done, sort of on the front foot of who they are and their comedy and whatever. Yeah, Simon. Um, you know, there's some others who are definitely out like matt lucas and stephen fry yes or whatever sasha but, baron cohen well sasha yeah but uh, they were but uh, habs with you weren't they or not maybe not the same that, sasha sasha yeah they're younger than me can you not bring it up so much sorry um, sasha <laughs> and matt uh, were both at haberdashers at the school i went to yeah, yeah. which is quite a jewish school yes um, but i was I mean, at merchant taylor's down the road oh were you Wait, yeah. right, we right. we have a rivalry. Okay, <laughs> I don't remember that rivalry, but that might have been because one of the things about haberdashers, uh, which I'm going to stress now, this is this is interesting. I I don't feel shame about anything. I think, but I do always say this. I wonder if it is shame, but I think it also might just be my truth gene. So it's one of the two, and you can tell me perhaps. Is I do always say when people say that I went to that school, that I went to it when it was a direct grant school. So that was direct grant was a thing in the seventies. In fact, the Conservatives introduced whereby you could send your clever children to a, a big independent fee-paying school and the government would means test you, your parents, 
And, you know, if you didn't have much money, which we didn't, they would pay for your education. So the state paid for my education at a private school. So maybe they might need to show that has some kind of Jewish shame in it to try and make it like we, we weren't rich. Again, I'm hearing the people listening and they're going, oh, well, they say all this stuff and they've just mentioned two private schools. So I'm actually, and I'm feeling relieved now that you've said, okay, well, no, you weren't, you know. And then I, I also want to put in, well, look, my, my dad was from a very working class background. He couldn't send my brother or sister to a school like that. It was, again, that I was the one. And I want to tell everyone that. I go, And he was so proud. Like you talk about assimilation before. I remember him saying when he sent me to this school and he saw me walking with two very Aryan rugby looking guys would like to come pick me up from school or whatever. It, it was a very, very proud day for him. Um, right. Just that I was. That's with, interesting because, yeah. you know, what? I don't know if there is a shame in or sort of a hearing thing, because I know we talk about shame when sometimes what we just mean is because of social media and all the rest of it. We know that there are so many people out there wanting to take you down for whatever reason. And without any doubt, saying you went to a private school in whatever way is a reason for lots of people to say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, this is how you got on and you're blah, 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 and therefore you can't relate to ordinary people and all that stuff. So it might not necessarily be about shame. I mean, in terms, just to go back to that briefly, in terms of I, I would never have had that. I might have had a certain amount of we're proud because my mum was a refugee and my dad was working class to send you to this school, even though they didn't have enough money, so it wasn't really much to do with them. But it wouldn't have been about hanging out with Aryans, not least because Hamadash <laughs> had loads of Jews in it. But I also, I went to a very Orthodox Jewish primary school. I went to the Northwest London Jewish Day School, in which I had to wear sitzit and a yarmulke and pray before every meal and learn Hebrew and whatever. I went to a really, and that, that wasn't because my parents were Orthodox Jews, because that was the only school in Cricklewood in the 1970s where a Jew wouldn't get beaten up. Yes. Well, that's part of why my dad changed his name, because it, it, was, right. it wasn't the school he went to. It was like that, unfortunately. No, no, I would definitely have got beaten up every day if I'd gone to Ailstone, Stone, which was the local comprehensive or whatever. So I went to Northwest London Jewish Day School. But I would say, I think, another reason why I'm not ashamed, and I know a lot of people might read this differently, <laughs> is that I um, didn't really meet a non-Jew until I went to secondary school. I, all my parents' friends were Jewish. Uh, I went to a Jewish primary school. And for me, the the some people, when they come out of that, Jewish cocoon there and see that the world isn't Jewish I think might get shot but for me it'd been set early and I sort of think well Jews is, is the norm Jews is the default and it's the other people who are the non-norm and I still at some level think that I think I still have some level think that having said that I'm going to tell you what is a funny story now I took I did a show the first of my shows uh, that I've done since I came back to stand up having given it up for a while uh, was called Fame Not the Musical it was about fame uh, and I tell this story in it about how um, I'd gone to my children's, my daughter's, I think, uh, primary school leaving day. This was quite a long time ago now. I show a film of it. And in the film of it, it's got all these kids getting awards, reading poetry, singing songs, uh, teachers standing up and doing tearful speeches. It's two hours long. It's unbelievably moving and whatever. And then I say, on the last day of my primary school, Mr. Cohen came into our class and said that um, we were all going but the, uh, to different schools, but that anyone who went to a non-Jewish school should know that there are people in the world who really don't like Jews. And that was it. He didn't sing. There was no, you know, <laughs> award. There was no, you know, uh, lovely moment where we all cried. That was it. I mean, you know, he basically just said, you should know there are people who don't like Jews. Uh, and that was our learning process. And he was, of course, completely right about yeah. that. Did he end on that? Um, that was it. That was my... And now out you go into the world. 
<laughs> there are people who go to Jewish schools, and that's one thing. But you, the ones who are going to non-Jewish schools, you should know. Loads of them won't like Jews. Um, and so, and you know, things were a bit. <laughs> there were no trigger warnings back there. Uh, things were a bit harder <laughs> uh, in, in many respects. But um, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I don't. I've never felt any sense of like that. Any sense of like that's really interesting. That idea of your dad being proud that you were walking with two. Two men, two stormtroopers to rugby. The thing is, he won't. He won't remember having said that. He'll listen to this. He won't remember having said that. And it, uh, so, hopefully, he doesn't feel like he's being misquoted. But he did. He did say it. Um, but and and you know, I understand that as well because, as you say, you know, he was at a school where you were bullied for being Jewish and that kind of thing. And there is that sort of urge for assimilation. But I'm sure he'll realise, just as I do now, and and we all do, is that it's not right. It's not fair that we shouldn't have to feel that shame. No, absolutely. I do sometimes think. I've made this decision now. I'm sort of easy with it to be Britain's go-to Jew. Uh, and there's so much, you know, there's so like, and, and, like the Whoopi Goldberg thing is just another. Uh, then there was the Herschel Think thing about the Royal Corps or whatever. And everyone comes to me now to talk about these things because I've made myself visible in the way that maybe lots of Jews don't. And I don't want to back away from that because it goes against all my principles of being out there and talking about being Jewish. At the same time, I like to talk about other things in my life uh, and in my world and in things I think about. And uh, it can feel boxed in. And that's not to do with shame. That's to do with not wanting to be typecast. Um, I mean, actually, there is a slight other element to it as well, which is I think that I believe in general that although you should be able to talk about your ethnic identity and Jews should be able to talk about it like anyone else, you should not be defined by your ethnic identity. And it can feel a bit like that's happening to me because of things I've written and ways, you know, what I'm prepared to talk about. So if there's if there's something you can talk about in this last four minutes, is what I'm saying, that's not about Jews, that would be great. I've been noticing a lot of different kinds of trolls since going to your troll, the troll stuff. You, does that sound like a good thing, trolls on social media? Yeah, yeah, well, okay. So in particular there were kinds of trolls so there was one one i had recently was was a guy he was listening to me on someone else's podcast and he was he was sending he was tweeting um uh hi andrew just listening and i'm thinking oh this sounds nice and he goes i'm listening to you on on this guy's podcast uh quite excited for it 20 minutes later he writes okay now i i'm listening i think you might be a cunt and then 20 minutes <laughs> later he tweets yep i'm sure you definitely are a cunt and at the end he tweeted listen to the whole thing you're a complete cunt now the right. funny thing was this it wasn't actually funny on though. <laughs> it's funny and it was on like it was on like a, it was on discord it was a different it wasn't twitter but other people were messaging quite nice things or neutral things and i was interacting with them i didn't reply to this guy cuz what's the point and he kept tweeting then oh look he's replying to everyone else not me what's going on here and then he sent me a <laughs> right. message about how disappointed he was, going, come on, what? Why well, it's won't a private message? He then said, "Yeah, private one. Yeah, come on, Andrew, what's going? Why won't you reply? You're replying to all these people. What's going on?" I said, "You called me a cunt," and he yeah. he was just like yeah. he was he was, a, and there was a type of troll you talked about on your uh, trolls not dolls. I think there was there was a few of there was that kind, and there was like the disappointed in you kind. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd break them down into lots of different types. Ones who would call you a cunt and others who are morally, come from very moral high ground and find that they're disappointed with you. This guy's both, which is yeah. unusual. Yeah. yeah. I thought um, I've got to tell that's David. Very interesting. <laughs> that's very interesting, though, because it comes to, it speaks to a central point about trolls uh, and indeed the technology that we, we have created, which is, of course, it uh, completely eradicates the humanity uh, between people so that someone can call you a cunt repeatedly and still be baffled 
as to why you might choose not to engage with them, right? It's sort of amazing because I think that person may understand that had you been walking down the street and, and someone come up to you and said, you're a cunt, and then come up to you again and said, you're a cunt. No, you're definitely a cunt. Over and over and over again. Eventually, you'd have said, you know what, mate? Maybe I'll choose to go down this street rather than the one you were on. I'm having flashbacks to my childhood, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they would understand, but people would understand that, right? But somehow on social media, because of its weird inhumanity, I mean, I was always very used to this, actually. Uh, it didn't surprise me because because I'm very old, as you pointed out. Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I, when I, before social media, uh, I was often, you know, the subject of really horrible rants by like Julie Birchall, the journalist used to, in her column in The Guardian, used to slag me off week in, week out. And what I realised is that, you know, she doesn't have any sense of me as a human being. It's just a scratching post for her rage and anger that I am. Um, And that's what you see on a massive scale now with social media, is that, that sense of like, well, obviously I don't have to imagine this person's internal life. It's just my internal life which is angry, and they're going to be the way I'm going to express that. And that's what's happening to you. But it's odd that then he doesn't realise that when he tries to make it human by saying, why aren't you talking to me? That's sort of weird, isn't it? There's a lot of weird people out there. And I always think about you, and because and, I follow you on Twitter, and I follow John Ronson and lots of people who've got a lot of followers. You must go online, because I go online, and I've got a few, I'm like, oh, God, I've got to scroll through. And it's not that many, like, no, notifications. I don't. I don't. I don't so how do you see them? I don't anymore. I mean, not always. I sometimes do. I mean, this this is this is a change of policy, right? Since trolls, not the dolls. So when I did trolls, not the dolls, as is obvious, because a lot of the show is me dealing with people who've sent me mad, angry, you know, racist, whatever messages. Uh, that was a time when I did tend to scroll through, and I tr- treated them like hecklers, uh, and I would respond to them and whatever. And I got a show out of that, so that's good. But now I've got too many followers. Um, and if I say something, I will get, you know, literally thousands of responses. Some of them will be lovely and some of them will be horrible and whatever. And I just can't risk the time and the, and the mental health, you know, possibility of going through each one of those. And actually it has really helped my relationship with social media. I mean, you might've seen the documentary I did about social media and the documentary about it on BBC two. Uh, and in that I came off social media and that was actually fine i wasn't like lou reed in 1973 being told he can't see his dealer i wasn't climbing up the walls and it was quite good but then i thought you know what what i'm going to do is i'm going to stay on social media but frankly i'm going to be more of a broadcaster you know because david mitchell said this to me yesterday i saw david mitchell i do i used to do a radio show called heresy uh, which is about a challenging received opinion and i stopped doing it and gave it to victoria corin to do who is his wife and so he was at the show because i did the show yesterday uh, and he said, uh, when I said I just basically say things now on Twitter and don't bother to check the responses, he said, yeah, well, none of us got into this uh, to, because we want to hear other people's opinions. <laughs> you know, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're here for. We're here yeah. to say stuff that we think is funny or and whatever. And, you know, the idea that that becomes a massive conversation, it's, that's not why we did it. Um, so that is what social media is. But, yeah, I don't basically check, check all responses now. I'm sorry if you're listening to this. I'm thinking, like the bloke who called you a cunt. Oh, why hasn't David been in touch for a while? Yeah, brilliant. But that's why. Yeah. 
That was wonderful. I laughed a lot at the beginning. I hope you did too. But I hope that you learned as much as I did about Jewishness and anti-Semitism today. There was so, so much more I wanted to cover and I hope to do so if I can, if I can get David on here again one day. Get Jews Don't Count wherever you get your books. It's in the show notes as well. And follow David on at Badil on Twitter. I'm on Gold underscore OK. For bonus perks, sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold. There's often a bonus part. I didn't ask David to do that um, because I think he's just got a million interviews to do. But usually there's at least one a week. I'm upping the episodes to twice weekly soon, so there'll definitely be at least one bonus episode every week as well. Thanks to my newest patrons. That's Mike M and Jacqueline G. And thanks to all of you for signing up on YouTube and Apple. Uh, I don't get your names there, but thank you very much. Anyway, I see I see statistics. I do get names on YouTube, actually, but the latest uh, signer-upper said that she didn't want the shout-out. Please keep on reviewing. I've had some lovely ones of late. Louis S1244 in the UK on Apple gave five stars and wrote, love your podcast. Listen every time I'm in work. Do some work, Louis. Anyway, really interesting guests and you interview them very well. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Louis. I appreciate that. And I'm just kidding. Don't do any work. Listen to this instead. Um, Evie wrote on Podcast Addict, five stars. Love it. My favorite podcast after hearing Andrew and tangentially speaking. Uh, that was my fave before. Amazing guests and a lovely host. Oh, thank you, Evie. I really appreciate that. Tangentially speaking, of course, is uh, Chris Ryan's podcast. Chris Ryan is a friend of Joe Rogan's. Uh, and it was a pleasure to speak about exorcism and all those kinds of things on there. That's all for now, but see you next week for the second part of Jordan Harbinger's episode. He talks about being kidnapped and about whether other people should start podcasts and what advice he'd give. Uh, going up to two episodes a week from the 7th of March, which is exciting. Things are growing here at On The Edge HQ. Thanks again to David Badil. Thank you to all of you for sticking with me. Please tell friends, subscribe and share. See you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.